you know, I just liked playing somebody, a woman who was so muscular and unapologetically commanding and brazen because we never get to be that way. And I just suddenly had like full license. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 16 years, Debbie has been talking with creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Claire Danes talks about her long career and what she learned about spies from playing one. A lot of times, spies marry spies, right? For obvious reasons. Same reason actors marry actors. There's just something about Claire Danes that makes her hard not to watch. And we've been watching for a long time. As a teenager in the 1990s, she played Angela Chase in the much-loved but short-lived television show, My So-Called Life. After many film and theater roles, she starred in the much-loved, long-running series, Homeland, which won her a few Emmy Awards for Outstanding Lead Actress. Homeland just wrapped up after its eighth and final season, and you can't help but wonder what this actor will do next to compel us to watch her again. Claire Danes, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Claire, I understand for a time you owned a hula hoop made by the artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. How did you come to have that? I've so been looking forward to this question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that is true. It was hot pink with um, white stripes all around it. My parents owned, actually still own, with another couple, a loft on Crosby Street. And uh, Basquiat was a renter. I was about four years old at the time. And I do remember seeing him in the elevator. And he was... Very charming. And some grown-ups really register with kids. You know, they're like on the kid plane. And I recognized that he was one of those people. And yeah, he eventually moved out and left a few objects, a hot pink hula hoop being one of them. So You grew up in your parents' artist loft, obviously, in this same Mm -hmm. building with Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah. Your dad studied engineering and biology at Brown University and then transferred to the Rhode Island School of Design in the 1960s, where he met your mother. Did they originally want to be designers? Yeah. So my mom was a textile designer. Um, She studied textiles at RISD. And was one for 10 years. Um, my, one of my first memories was watching her, you know, paint an endless series of flowers while watching or more listening to all my children. Um, and, and my dad was a photographer and he had built a dark room in our loft. Um, and that's what they did at the start of their, their young lives. Uh, they went to the Bowery first after graduating from RISD and, then eventually moved to Soho. But yeah, and, and, and then they did other things. Um, uh, you know, my, I have an older brother, Asa, uh, seven years older. And then when I came around, I think it was time to make some more money, I, 
really. Uh, and my dad be, was a contractor, became a contractor, ran a, a business called Overall Construction. Good name. And a yeah, good Worthy uh, of a RISD grad, definitely. He is a punster. Um, and my mom ran a toddler school in our loft, a daycare center. I saw two different names for your mom's toddler school, the Crosby Street Toddlers Group and the Crosby Uh Street Toddlers Tribe. So I think we should clarify for the record, which was was the actual name. It was much much easier to say and more alliterative. It was Crosby Kids. Ah, Um, Crosby Crosby Kids. Kids. Okay. And uh, yeah, there were six kids in the morning and six kids in the afternoon. And and she started that when I was about four years old. She taught one and two-year-olds. And she ended when I became this like actor, teenager person. But yeah, it was a funny way to live. Is it true you had a trampoline, a trapeze installed over the kitchen table and a swing suspended from the living room ceiling in the apartment? Yes, that's all true. But that was all pre-nursery school. I oh. mean... <laughs> Oh, that was just like life in the in the Danes household. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the great things about a loft is that you have this, you know, uninterrupted flat plane, uh, you know, just expanse of of wood floors. So, it was an ideal roller rink and I guess my parents really believed in fun. <laughs> and then I had to share that space with other little humans, which was... Yeah. What was it like for you to share your home with a classroom full of toddlers in the morning and in the afternoon? Um, You know, I, it was tough. I've, I guess I struggled with feelings of jealousy uh, for sure, but I adapted and they were amusing. And, you know, I encounter them every so often now as fellow middle-aged people. And it's uh, always a little startling. I understand that Lena Dunham was actually rejected uh, when she applied to be part of the toddler yeah, school and her parents she was. did. My mom, my, she was, my mom was amazing. She was really excellent at what she did. And uh, there was a long list of people who were eager to send their kids there. And, uh, and yeah, Lena, when I, I met Lena years ago, and I, that was like the first thing she told me was that her mother was still a little annoyed, but <laughs> I, 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 it was not personal. I know that to be true. I know I do. I mean, I do know a lot of nursery rhymes now, which is helpful having your own daughter. young boys. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. right. Um, I understand that you discovered the joy of dissimulation when you were three years old, when not wanting to actually take a nap you pretended that you were sleeping by mimicking some of your mother's twitches and body movements while she was sleeping. How Mm -hmm. did you figure out how to do that with your own body and to pretend that sort of seamlessly? Um, I think it's just a natural human impulse and instinct to to mimic, uh, to observe and to imitate. I don't know why that's the case. I'm sure it's served us evolution in evolutionary terms. But look, I mean, kids are taking in so much. I, I'm just shocked by how perceptive and sensitive my now toddler Rowan is, for example. But Cyrus was the same way. It's almost like the younger they are, the more tuned in they are to every detail. I don't know. I just, I do remember... That experience, it really was like, I think the first time I stumbled upon something like acting, 
And I just was delighted by the experience of it and, and the challenge of it. And it's still at the root of what I do now. It seems like you were rather headstrong from the very beginning of your life. And at five years old, while singing and dancing on your parents' bed, you saw Madonna on television and suddenly realized that performing could be a job. What gave mm-hmm. you the sense that Madonna was actually working, that it, this was her job? Yeah, that was another epiphanous moment where I connected an action to a vocation. Yeah, even at that age, even at five, people will ask you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I, I, I guess I knew that was something to consider And uh, I don't know. I just saw stars. I was just so inspired. I do remember, like, I couldn't contain the excitement and I had to release it by jumping on the bed. But yeah, no, Madonna was a major force and, and influence and aspirational figure, you know, it was... Does she know that? Have you ever told her? I have met her. I don't think I had the courage to actually admit that to her. I was probably playing it cool, but I was very charmed by her when I met her. I was, she has a great sense of humor and um, she's kind of salty. She didn't disappoint. She like delivered full Madonna. When, when my wife met her, she interviewed her for, I think, Harper's Bazaar and she went over to her brownstone and Madonna offered her what she called summer lemonade or something like something really funny. And it was rosé, <laughs> summer water. That was it, summer water. <laughs> it was like some summer water and it was rosé. And I just thought that was super funny and witty. I might and, have to steal that. Right? Yeah. Right? Summer water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you were six years old, you started taking dance classes with Ellen Robbins at the Dance Theater mm-hmm. Workshop, which you continued to take mm-hmm. for 10 years. And Ellen has said that you were a risk taker and improvised full blast from the start. And mm-hmm. and in thinking about your childhood, where did that fearlessness come from? It seems like just from the moment you popped out, you were just really certain about what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I was that way. I mean, there's like, there's a family story about how I, we would camp in this little plot of land on Massachusetts every year. And pick blueberries. And of course, I insisted on carrying the bucket of blueberries down the hill and I spilled them all inevitably. And and maybe (laughs) I insisted on doing it again and I spilled them again, you know, but so yeah, I was a very determined person. I can't account for that. I, I, I mean, I'm just so grateful that I had parents who were patient and encouraging and didn't swat that passion or enthusiasm away. They not only let me be whoever I was, but encouraged my curiosity about art and then ultimately performance art. I I think just the zeal was huge uh, and irrepressible. Um, Although I say that, and I'm sure there was a way to repress it, and they didn't. At six years old, you started therapy, which I believe you still continue to this day. And I, I understand that. Um, I've been in therapy for 30 years with the same therapist. Mm-hmm. And you've mm-hmm. said that you think it's a helpful tool and a luxury to self-reflect and get some insight. What motivated you to start so young? I didn't start till I was in my 20s. 
unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I went through a difficult time at six. Um, I saw ghosts and other creatures. Do you think they were real or do you think you were imagining it? I don't, I think I was very confused at the time. Specifically, there was a gargoyle um, who, quote unquote, lived on the pipes of our loft and would make me do things. Um, and uh, I think it was more like maybe burgeoning OCD or something. But I have to assume that I had a really unruly imagination and maybe I was confused about how to harness it. Um, I, I identify it, uh, just kind of coexist with it. Once I went to therapy, my parents' therapist, I finally realized that I had a problem and just that, that acknowledgement was sufficient to puncture the neuroses and they naturally dissipated. I mean, I, I remember Gideon said, can you anticipate when you're going to see these creatures? And I, I guess I had to admit that I, I had anticipated them. And he said, well, then you can also make them go away. But yeah, I mean, I was dogged by that, that anxiety, like well into my twenties. I was really <laughs> afraid of the dark. Um, I'm not anymore. I'm really proud of that. I don't know when that shift happened, but... I was going to ask you about that, actually, how, how that happened. I remember in college, I called my boyfriend in the middle of the night so that he could escort me to the the dorm bathroom so I didn't have to go alone. Like, it was still had a grip on me. How did you get over it? How did you get over that fear? The iPhone flashlight, maybe? Technology, the many uses. I, I don't know. I think, look, I still have a lot of questions about what lurks in the ether. And I'm really, really endlessly fascinated by the subconscious um, and what happens when our brains go dark at night. You know, so my big, my big phobias are ghosts, rats, and cockroaches. And I realized they're all nocturnal. They're all numerous. Like if you see one, you know there are countless Inevitably. others. It's that kind of deep stuff that defines and motivates us that we can't know fully, right? But I also, I mean, love that. It's- yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by it as well. What happens when we're not thinking? You know, what happens when we're not seeing? Yeah, I, it's it's like the ocean. I mean, there's so much of it and so little we understand about it. When you were eight years old, you were bothered by a male classmate and became worried when you considered the possibility that he could read your mind and discover your revenge fantasies. And when you asked your mom if it was possible for people to read your thoughts, she replied, your imagination is your own. You can do whatever you like with it. And there right there is like evidence of good parenting. (laughs) Yes. Wasn't that, isn't that a wonderful thing to say? It's an absolutely wonderful Um, thing to say. Yes. I, I, I'm getting goosebumps as you say that it's true. I just was so relieved. I was so <laughs> relieved. Because um, uh, the vision I had was pretty uh, violent. Yeah, what was um, the revenge fantasy? What were you going to do? Well, I did. I, I envisioned this like circle of people. He, he was in the center of it. 
and I guess people just went in and like beat him up, sort of rough, <laughs> like roughed him up, and then went back in a circle, and another person went in and. Oh, gosh. I don't think I would ever allow myself to go there even, like, now as an adult. But um, it was a release at the time. Yeah, and I think that's similar similar stuff that I was wrestling with. I mean, I I think that was what – that was related to this business of the ghosts and what is a a fleeting thought and what's real and um, how do I negotiate – all of that and what are my boundaries and uh, where do I start and end and how do I engage with the objective world, you know? Well, that's also a lot about acting too, of course. That is, that's a lot about acting. And, you know, there has to be a porousness there between what is conceived, what is imagined um, and, and what is actual and you have to kind of float in and out of those two states of being. I guess I've always been really consumed with thinking about that. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it was also at that point in your life you decided you wanted to be an actress. But what what I thought was so interesting was that you were worried about not being able to make enough money. And you decided <laughs> that you were going to become a therapist for your day job and teach <laughs> acting workshops on the weekends. And I'm wondering, were you worried about not making enough money or were you worried about not being successful? That's a really good question. I mean, it's really calcified over time as my being nervous about being uncomfortable, you know, physically not having enough money to support myself, which also had to do with the uh, uh, feeling of freedom. I wanted to, you know, be independent and have a sense of expansiveness in my life. I think it was more about that. But yeah, maybe there was the the fear of doing it in a way that wouldn't connect with people or, you know, wouldn't be successful. Yeah, that might have been part of it. I love the fact that at 10 years old, you formally announced that money or no money, you have to be true to your art. There was no plan B. You were going to take the risk and become an actress. You decided this at 10 years old. I believed mm-hmm. you announced this at the dinner table. <laughs> and you went out and found an agent. <laughs> I mean, talk about independence. How did you find an agent? Did you just like yeah. look one up in the phone book? Kind of. I mean, I, my best friend, Ariel's mom, is a woman called Tamar Rogoff, who's a choreographer. So Ariel had done a student film, and that same director was, was doing his next student film and look, was asking for a reference, and um, Tamar suggested me. So Tamara was kind of my first agent. Um, and then, you know, that was my first experience working on a set and in front of a camera. But I guess before that I had, I guess the first move that I make made was to take classes to acting classes at Lee Strasberg at 10 and totally loved it. And, um, and then I, there was a performing arts junior high school called PPAS, which is still around. I went in its first year of its existence and I met other kids who were 
uh, working professionally. And, and I'd, I had this student film under my belt and, and I guess I had done some other student films too. Like I, you know, I was in that world. <laughs> um, yeah. And then it was at that school through those other kids where I learned what an agent was and what a headshot was. And we had this dark room in our loft and the woman who was renting it took my headshot photos and we printed them <laughs> right there on site. Uh, and, and we sent them out and people answered, agents answered. And then they saw this little film that I had done. And I guess that was arresting enough to have them hire me. But it was really funny because I, I would just, I would, I would rollerblade from audition to audition, arriving a sweaty mess. But the stakes were so low. Like I had a day job of being a kid and going to school. And it, I mean, I, of course, I didn't feel like it was extracurricular because it was so clearly my life's calling. <laughs> Um, but not a whole lot was riding on it. And I was just grateful to have a chance to do it. I, I just loved it so much. Like I, I didn't have to get the job. I, I was reading sides with the casting director and that was another, another turn. Um, uh, so, so I don't think I had any smell of desperation, you know? Did being rejected at all upset you or did you, were you aware of it? Yes. And the closer you got to getting a job, the more painful the rejection was uh, unquestionably. Sometimes you audition like six times and then you'd get flown out to California and you'd be put up in a hotel and then it would be a screen test. And, you know, when it was down to you and two other people and you didn't get it, you felt that in your bones or I did. Um, yeah, brutal. Many, many tears were shed over lost gigs, but you know. When you were 12, you were offered a part in the soap opera, One Life to Live. And I believe you mentioned, was that the soap opera that your mother watched while she was making textiles? She was an all my children person, but yes. But you turned it down. You turned it down because you were worried that taking the part would mean selling out at 12. That's really how you felt. Yeah, I really did. I mean, I knew that I was still learning a whole lot that I was unformed as an actor. And, um, I, I didn't want to develop bad habits, which I might do on a soap opera. So I, 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 I didn't, it takes a it didn't, lot of guts. It, I guess so. I remember going, go, I mean, I got close to doing it and I remember like, yeah, they wanted me to color my hair. I don't know. I just, it didn't feel it didn't feel right. I know I had I had a lot of integrity when I was younger. I lost it along the way, and I'm hopefully, when? hopefully when did regaining you lose it? it. When did you lose well, it? Can you say got, that's the moment? I think I yeah, I think I got confused uh, in my late teens, early twenties. I guess right after Romeo and Juliet, when I suddenly, you know surfaced, uh, in a more major way and, and was getting offered a lot. And, um, that was like a whole other skill set, um, that, that I had to develop and I, I just didn't have it yet. And I may have had insight into acting at a very young age, but I didn't have any insight into movie stardom. Um, I, I didn't, 
I, I didn't have any point of reference. Um, and I think I was just making a lot of mistakes about what that meant. Um, and I got a little lost, but it's also at that time that I stopped working for a while. I definitely want to talk about that when you went to Yale, but, but, but before that, yeah. you won the part of Angela Chase in the now beloved television show, My So-Called Life, which not only brought you to national prominence, um, you also were nominated for an Emmy Award. You won a Golden Globe Award. You were 13 years old when you shot the pilot. You were 14 when you shot the series. Your castmate was Jared Leto, who played the heartthrob. Gordon Catalano. I was already in my 20s when the show was aired, but I truly thought that Jordan Catalano was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen. I mean, it was, he was just glorious. You were 14 and he was 21 in real life. Um, what was it like kissing him? Yeah, I, so there was a scene, like our first makeout scene, there was a stage direction that Angela kisses Jordan's face. I, I, that I was very confused by. And, um, I, yeah, I guess I asked the director what that meant. And, but he wasn't your first Jared, kiss. He wasn't your it first. It wasn't my first kiss. No, but I was not very practiced in the art <laughs> of making out at that point. Yeah. And so Jared kind of interjected and ex explained what that might mean. And, um, I don't know. It was weird. I mean, my mom was in Video Village watching all of this. I was, I, I was just so tiny that it. I, I, I think I couldn't even appreciate the awkwardness exactly. I just like pinched my nose and like jumped in. It's a show that I think really provided a lot of palpable feelings, um, especially for those of us in our twenties that were watching it. And the show ends in a cliffhanger. You don't know ever if Angela is going to go with Brian, a.k.a. Brain, or mm -hmm. Jordan, <laughs> which I love that, that I still do that. I still make that spelling mistake. And every single time I do, I think of the show. Um, who do you think Angela ended up with? Oh, Brain. Yeah. Oh, brain. Yeah. What's Brain doing now? He's probably... Running the world. Yeah. Um, you kind of yeah, wanted her I to think, have both, both experiences. I, I don't think she would have ended up with either of them. Right. But, um, That's true. She, That's true. I don't know. I'm still really good friends with so many people from the show. Um, and uh, Winnie is like my fairy godmother. No, it's, it's still a very vital connection to her and, and to that experience. And it was just miraculous to get that piece of material, um, you know, and, and I was really unhappy, acutely unhappy in junior high cause duh. Um, yeah. and you know, but I, I think I struggled even more than a lot and, you know, to just have this brilliant author write my diary entries for me and, and give me a chance to release all of this angst. Uh, it was uh, just a mercy. And it was such a healthy little culture on that set. And it was my my initial entry into this business and um, it was foundational. So I, I believed that world to be a safe and nourishing one, you know. So I'm 
just very, very lucky. The show ran for one season. It ran, it aired 19 episodes. It was canceled. I didn't even realize that it was canceled at the time. Mm. I remember talking to a friend who worked in the television business at that time who told me that no one expected you to do more than one season of the show because you were destined for much bigger things in the movie business. Were you disappointed when the show ended? Yeah, I was. But the show like didn't get picked up initially after we shot this kind of perfect pilot and I went to high school and, you know, my, my heart was so broken then. And then it did get picked up halfway through my first year of high school. Uh, you, you know, so I was already quite jerked around by it. Um, you know, and, 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 and as we talked about, I mean, I'd already experienced quite a lot of rejection just being a working actor. It's, it's such a defining part of what we do. Does it ever um, get easier? No, yeah, I don't think so. I've been wondering. <laughs> just, you know, it's I just don't like, think does so. it ever get easier? Does it? Like, yeah, yeah, what the hell? Something else will come along. It was sad because we we weren't able to end it consciously or say goodbye. But that it had this incredibly robust afterlife. You know, it got picked up. It's so um, timeless by different networks, and it's still in circulation somehow. By 1999, you had filmed 13 films in five years. You'd worked with the likes of Oliver Stone, Francis Ford Coppola, Baz Luhrmann, Matt Damon, Mickey Rourke, Liam Neeson, Uma Thurman, Leonardo DiCaprio. You were also offered the role that Kate Winslet ultimately played in Titanic with Leonardo. Um, You turned it down. Did you just have a sense of just too much? Um, yeah, I think it was definitely part of that. I had literally just finished filming Romeo and Juliet with Leo in Mexico, where the Titanic was going to be filmed, you know, another epic romantic drama. Um, it it did feel, (laughs) um, a a little repetitive. I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's different in a lot of ways, but, um, yeah, I think I had some wanderlust and I think there was part of me that anticipated that that might lead to a different level of stardom that I wasn't braced for. I was pretty clear about that. I didn't Yeah, I've read that you have no regrets. Are, none. Yeah, no, I wasn't conflicted in any way and I remain so. Um it was not mine to take. It just didn't feel like mine to take. You decided to put your film career on hold and attended Yale. You stated, and you mentioned here even just now, um, that you felt lost at the time. Mm -hmm. I read that you stated that you had played so many roles, but didn't really know who you were. Did going to Yale help that? So much, so much. I needed to just stop and give myself a chance to see who I was. And I didn't go to high school, really. I was technically enrolled at a school in LA, but was primarily tutored on set, which was a very lonely way to go about, <laughs> go about such a thing. And I'm, I don't know, I, I was starting to feel a little strange. I mean, I was, I guess always mature 
or precocious or something, but that just became really etched um, when I was strictly surrounded by adults. And I didn't know how to like hang out. I didn't have friends independent of the industry who were my age. I really needed to make some. And I also wanted to give myself a chance to explore different ways of thinking and different subjects. I had decided that I wanted to be an actor when I was a very young person. And I just wanted to, to make that choice as more of a realized grown up human. <laughs> what kinds of things um, did you yeah. study at Yale? I had a really great time. And in fact, my favorite class that I took was a graphic design class. No. Yes. Really? Yes. My mom. You got my some graphic design chops? Well, I, yeah. So my, you know, my parents obviously were artists. And so I grew up drawing and we had so many, I mean, it was like a wonderland. Obviously there's the trapeze in the swing, but there was also a light box and, you know, a cutting board and my bed, this incredible rubber stamp collection. And we had just so a surplus of materials. I, I still do. I, my craft section in the basement's very serious. Um, so, so I used to draw a lot. And then in junior high, when I was, you know, a miserable, misanthropic kind of pecked, uh, person, I, I would, I just kind of retreated into drawing. So I became pretty proficient. And so I took a life drawing class and it was so humbling because I, I had, I stopped drawing. I, I didn't kind of put it together. I didn't quite realize that I'd stopped doing that because acting had become so consuming. And suddenly it was like I was drawing with my left hand and I, I was really, I, I was just shocked um, and mortified. Anyway, so I took this life, I finally got that muscle working again, which was great. And my mom suggested I take a graphic design class. She said, you know, Claire, your your work is quite stylized and you might like graphic design. And I was like, oh, it just hurt, like really stung. I knew what that was code for, you know, anyway, uh, but, and, but she was so right. The first lesson we had, it's one of the best lessons I've ever had ever. And she gave all the students the same sheet of paper, the same ruler and the same pencil. And we all had to draw lines from the top to the bottom using the ruler and the pencil. And then we tacked all of our drawings on the board and they were so different. It really has always stayed with me, you know, like just do what you do as well as you possibly can. Don't try to be interesting. Just do you really mindfully. Yeah. So. It's so interesting to see the perspectives that people have when given the same assignment. There was no room for creativity. Like <laughs> just draw a set of lines. And, and um, even then your self is expressed. It's amazing. After two years at Yale, you returned to acting. One of your first roles was a part in The Hours, which was based on Michael Cunningham's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, and you acted alongside Meryl Streep and Julianne Moore. And one of the scenes, one of your scenes, was a rather heartbreaking conversation with an elderly Julianne Moore. And I got the sense that you were the only really kind interaction she'd had with anyone in a long, long time. 
do you remember that that particular scene and and what you were experiencing? Because yeah, I thought it I was guess... one of really the most beautiful scenes in the movie. Oh, that's so nice that you say that. I, you know, I loved making that movie. I mean, obviously, it was such a special one, and it was my first time meeting and getting to work with Meryl. And it was such an effortless uh, scene between the two of you. You're so comfortable lying on the bed and talking as mother and daughter. It was it was a really beautifully nuanced scene. Yeah, I I mean, gosh, it was just just so thrilling to be that close to this genius who I had, you know, admired and studied for so long. I mean, when I saw Sophie's Choice at nine, I knew I, well, I needed to do this thing. I mean, Madonna, yes, but then... Meryl. Um, you must in a, know in a that you were, you've been referred to in your early years of acting as a young Meryl Streep. You you must, I, I came across that, that. You must know that. Um, yeah, but there are a lot of other young actresses who have also been called that. I mean, she's like, you know, it's just, she's the bar, you know, she's <laughs> the, the example of, um, of, of greatness. And now she's, you know, Mamie, her daughter is one of my best friends. So I, now she's like, Mamie's mom. So that's funny. But, uh, and Michael is now a dear, dear friend. Cause I did another movie that he wrote called evening where I met Hugh and he married us and we're in a Ulysses book club with him now. I mean, like, really? um, yes, that's what we're doing during our pandemic is, um, are you just reading? Ours. Are you, uh, yeah. We're, oh, we're, uh, so we are, we are reading. My Ulysses. dream is to do a, a visual interpretation of that book. Really? Someday. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. So you've gotten through it. <laughs> I, well, I took a class on Ulysses in college and fell in love with it. And there's a line from the book, the longest way round is the shortest way home, which I've decided uh-huh. is like the motto of my life. And yeah, I'm, I'm having yeah. I'm having it carved into the steps to my house so that mm-hmm. it's sort of just there as part of my life. Well, that's a good tattoo if you're ever going to get one. <laughs> exactly right. Uh- <laughs> Anyway, so no, it, it was it was a it was a, a wonderful reentry into acting again. Excellent material with excellent actors and Stephen Daldry, who's you know another very inspired person. You returned yeah. to the small screen in two thousand and nine when you played the role of an autistic and brilliant woman in the HBO film Temple Grandin. And you followed this role with playing Carrie Matheson, the brilliant woman struggling with a bipolar <laughs> condition on Showtime's Homeland. How has playing these extraordinary women impacted your own brain or your own brain waves, you know, just to bring the sun back <laughs> into this? Um, I really was so thrilled to play women who were autonomous and defining and driving their own lives and the story. And I'm a it's like a little sad that they need <laughs> to be uh, so extra uh, in, in order to warrant that. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I was very privileged to get to consider Temple in a deep way because she is an actual hero. And I've always been really, really interested, obviously, in how people work, but especially really interesting people. Um, and she saw things differently from most of us. And she was able to make the world better because of it. 
you know, and she suffered enormously and kept advancing herself and her interests in her work despite all of that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I just felt very privileged to have a chance to illustrate that and hopefully engender empathy in, in people and audience members who might not have understood how somebody like that thinks and is and exists. Another thing these parts had in common was how many awards you won playing them, which included three Emmy Awards, a slew of Golden Globes, Screen Actor Guild Awards, Critics' Choice Awards, People's Choice Awards, and more. And yet you said this about winning. There was a period when I won all the things for Temple, and then I won a lot of things for Homeland. So it was like, oh my God, this again, which was very nice. But the gift of that is that you learn that it doesn't really matter. Claire, tell me more about that. Why doesn't it really matter? It seems like this is like another benchmark that an actor yeah. se- searches for. I remember for. seeing Al Pacino in the green room at some award show, and he was up for something. And he was kind of green. He just looked miserable. And he said out loud, he said, ah. These things are dreadful. You dread losing them. You dread winning them. You know, <laughs> and I, so I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, they're so nerve-wracking and and they feel something outside of the actual experience of making the thing. I mean, it, it's a whole other industry like at this point. Yeah. And yes, it is. It's hugely validating and uh, but it can't define you. I mean, nobody does this so that they can accept an award at the end of it, you know? And I think we can get confused about that. They're interesting and they can be important markers about what we value in our society at any given moment and um, what we recognize to be excellent work. But it's also a little arbitrary. And, you know, those standards are set by a select group of people. And it's not always reflective of what is really deserving of attention or, you know, it's, I I don't know. I I think it's also dangerous to be critical of them in any way, like, because you don't want to be seen as like ungrateful or on the outside or... Yeah, it um, sounds like Al Pacino's comment is pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, he yeah. just got it so right. I just will always take his line. Homeland debuted in 2011 and had its show finale earlier this year. You played the role of Carrie Matheson, a counterterrorism operative for the CIA. And I read that the writing team had you in mind for the role from the beginning. In fact, their first six drafts of the pilot, they called the character Claire. At the time, you were also up for a role in Clint Eastwood's movie about J. Edgar Hoover. Um, what made you decide to choose Homeland? I mean, you had no idea that it was going to become what it became. When I first read that script, it was, I, of course, wanted to read the next one. It's, they're incredible writers, Alex and Howard, and boy, do they know how to craft a, a cliffhanger. But I just thought, no, that's way too much. I mean, and I understood what the commitment of television show uh, would, would be, and she was under such duress, and she would be forevermore. You know, I just didn't want to invite that level of suffering into my life. 
But I don't know. Once I realized that I was just flinching from the the level of the challenge, I realized I I had to do it. And it was really scary. It was really scary. But, you know, it's not very often that you get, well, one, to play a character that is as dynamic and robust as Carrie Matheson is. And I had such an incredible team. I mean, Alex surrounded himself by other exquisitely talented writers. I mean, he had the courage to do that. Every single person on that writing team had been showrunners themselves. So um, just they were all really, really skillful. And, you know, Mandy Patinkin was my partner. And, um, you know, it's like it's much harder to do a technically easy scene that is poorly written than a a really exacting scene that is excellently written. Um, and so I just got a, an endless stream of excellently written, very exacting um, scenes. I just was so amazed that I never got bored. I mean, that was like 10 years of my life. And there was a no, uh, always a new facet of the character to unearth. And the writers were always very good about doing that. I mean, they also didn't want to write themselves into ruts. And it was almost like an anthology s- series in that there was a reset every year. Uh, and um, we would be based in a new location and we would focus on a new theme. So yeah, it was, it was very stimulating and I got to learn a lot about the bipolar condition and about the clandestine services. Yeah. What was spy camp? That must've been amazing going to spy camp to learn. These people do exist. I know. I I want to meet them. They're also hidden in in the dark corners. Um, yeah. I came to the show late into season one. I actually watched the show by accident. I was watching. So my family at the time, we were all hooked on Dexter and we were uh-huh. all getting together to watch the season finale of Dexter, which mm-hmm. we then did. And somehow we just left the television on and all of a sudden it was the season finale of season one of Homeland. And I, and you know, my brothers were out and about and doing things. And I was like, holy shit, what is this? And there you were on the lawn screaming in front of um, Damon Lewis Brody's house and his family. Yeah. And I, I just, that was it. I was hooked. I ended up watching the entire first season in a binge right, and then watched right. it for the rest of the, the rest of every season since. And, yeah. and watched how Carrie changes. And you stated that the experience was your first time aging with a character and experiencing her develop and change. What do you think was the biggest thing you learned about Carrie over the 10 years you played her? Well, just that wonderful tension between her vulnerability and her her super strength, right? It was endlessly enjoyable to play with. And that she was her reason for being was always so unwavering and so clear, which was to protect her country. And I thought, I mean, her being bipolar was really relevant to that because she's obviously a Cassandra figure, but, you know, for somebody who is struggling with, with that experience, I mean, they know that their minds can go boom, right? That their, their, 
their world can be in disrepair all of a sudden without any warning. So they just are not ever comfortable. <laughs> they have to be hypervigilant. And so I think it was a natural extension for her to imagine the world as a place that needed her constant attention. So yeah, I thought that was that was interesting. And you know, when she had so little to lose. I mean, she wasn't ever really going to partner with somebody in a kind of conventional way and have a nuclear family. It's not something she could do. And it's not something she was that interested in doing, um, which allowed her to have all of these kind of outrageous adventures. You know, I just liked playing somebody, a woman who was so muscular and unapologetically commanding and brazen because we never get to be that way. Never. And I just suddenly had like full license and we've seen what she can do. So, you know, like nobody dared challenge her. It was just a given after a certain point that when she walked into a room, you fucking listened, you know, I was just like, awesome. Um, so that was, uh, that was a great gift. <laughs> yeah. The first few seasons of Homelander centered around your relationship with Damien Lewis's character, Brody. And then you also have an intense, but very different kind of relationship with Rupert Friend's character, Peter Quinn, who, by the way, mm -hmm. I was just devastated when he was killed off the show. It just, I had a mad crush on him. Oh, um, yeah. But the mentor slash father figure relationship you have with Mandy Patankin's character, Saul Berenson, is the one that I just found so endlessly fascinating. And after 10 years of working together, you stated that you knew each other's rhythms so intimately, it became cellular. How does that actually happen? How does that momentum build, that mutuality grow? Well, just lots of practice. I mean, we've just put in so many hours together. And I really like the propulsive nature of television. I like how much material you have to produce in a very confined amount of time. So I couldn't indulge my neuroses or get at anything like precious about the work. You just had to keep forging on. Um, and yeah, I mean, you live your character's backstory after in our eighth season, the catalog of experience that I shared with Mandy on and off the set was just huge. There was just so much material to draw from. I don't know. It feels like you're cheating almost, but <laughs> um, it's not something you have to imagine. It's been lived. Yeah. And he's an, he's just an amazing partner. He's, he's just so good and he's so deft and tuned in and flexible. And then you hear him and sing and you can't believe it's the same person, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. But he's, he don't, you know, he's just truly playful. And anything I would offer, he would receive and, you know, make something kind of magical out of. And he's obviously very musical. And his rhythm as Saul was so wonderfully opposite to my rhythm as Carrie. It kind of worked and it worked from the very beginning, like in that first read through in the pilot, uh, as soon as we started, it kind of flew. So 
Yeah. There were two scenes with the character Saul Berenson that I want to ask you about. The first is at the end of season seven, after you're released from a Russian prison, after nearly a year where your medication was withheld for Mm -hmm. bipolar disorder. And when you're released, you're in full psychosis. You sort of see Saul Berenson. We think that you do. Um, but it looks and it looks like you're running towards him because he's mm-hmm. there to receive you from this prison. Yeah. But you run right past him. And that's the end of the season. And we're all left with like, holy shit, where is she running to? Was that improvised or was that in the script? That's my question. Oh no, that was that was in the script, yeah. And he grabs her and she doesn't recognize him. Right. I just thought that was beautiful writing. Oh I mean, my god. It's so wrenching. I mean, we know that this is really her most vital human connection. And uh, she's so far gone. She she can't identify him. No, it makes me cry thinking about it. That scene Um, killed uh, me. Yeah. You know, and and we shot a lot of material that was then used in flashback in the final season. And that was a little frustrating to, you know, have that all be for naught. I mean, obviously it, it wasn't, but, but it was much more powerful to just imagine what she had been through. And it it was very suggestive. But yeah, no, they really do know how to write an ending. I mean, even in the pilot, that was clear. I think that I was almost most struck by the potency of the ending than I, than I was anything else. And um, the ending of that season or the ending of the show in totality, even of the pilot, when I first, when I first read it, you know, um, I, I just thought, I wanted to read the next one. I I imagined other people would feel similarly. The second scene is the scene where you nearly kill him to try and find out information about one of his informants. Do you think that Carrie ever could have actually killed Saul Berenson? Well, it's interesting because obviously there was a lot of discussion about how we would and our show. And we always went straight to the crux of it and to the center of the conflict. And this was inevitable, right? But yeah, Carrie is massively transgressive and even corrupt in some ways. But only for the right reasons, I think. Yeah, but we could never forgive her that. I mean, she can't kill Saul and remain a hero. And that was like, it was an interesting practice, right? Or meditation. Like what, what are the requirements for heroism in a piece of fiction? And, uh, it's that basically. So, um, and that's why she's so frustrated with Saul because he can't kill this woman, you know, because of his personal connection, but actually in moral terms, he's at fault there. Carrie's right. It's, not commensurate. You know, one life does not equal hundreds of thousands. But yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, we are not rational creatures. Yeah. What was it like when Saul beckons for you and he's like nearly dead or nearly about to die and he beckons for you and you think he's finally going to tell you who the informant is to save his own life and you come close to him and you're face to face and he whispers with all his might, fuck you. (laughs) Well, I mean, that was a part of our dynamic 
throughout oh. the series. Um, <laughs> it was so intense. And so, yeah, I think I told him also at one point, like, fuck you. Maybe it was the beginning of the third season. I distinctly remember that. I was like <laughs> in a hospital, drugged up. And, yes, I, you know, so yes. um, we were, we've exchanged many, many a fuck you. But yeah, that was the, that was the ultimate one. Um, but, but yeah, so much of the show too is about the loneliness of being a spy, right? And that's kind of the, the sacrifice that they make. They, they can't really enjoy the pleasures of, domestic life or intimate connections, you know? I mean, it was so, it was so interesting talking to actual people in the business. A lot of times spies marry spies, right? For obvious reasons, same reason actors marry actors, (laughs) but, but so, so they work together, you know, they have to have their fights in the shower or out at sea. And often the relationships would fall apart when they were done with an assignment or a post and they'd come back home and they didn't have the adrenaline to keep them connected or afloat. So I just, just thought all of those particulars about what it might actually be like, uh, were, were really interesting. And it's not a natural, not a natural experience. Have you read any of the fan fiction? There's some really great fan fiction. Oh my God. Angela Chase grows up to be Carrie Matheson. Gideon, (laughs) um, Jason Gideon grows up to be Saul Berenson. Um, It's so incredible. I I had so much (laughs) fun in in that rabbit hole. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. But but Carrie ends up in Russia living with, I I, I don't know if the term is right, a a Russian operative. She ends up a sort of Edward Snowden character. But in the very, very end, she begins to send Saul information. And so for my own personal fan, fiction from the character herself. Do you imagine that they're able to have any kind of friendship again? I I can't help but hope so that they can. That was pretty inspired. Again, um, all credit to, to Alex and company. Yeah. I mean, as I say, it's so much about their being alone uh, in the world and, and the cost and the pain of that. But her connection to Saul is sort of everything. Like the way I understood it, she, she couldn't uh, attempt these risks or these um, daredevil moves if she didn't feel supported and known, you know, kind of held by him. So yeah, I, I, I love that idea that that line was not severed, right? And I mean, and they're kind of, I mean, for all of their sluttiness, they're pretty monastic. Like they're so devoted to this ideal, this cause, which is very abstract. Yeah, that's Um, why I need for them to be united sort of eternally, infinitely. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But it almost doesn't matter because you know that, they're still communing, you know, somehow, spiritually. Yes, in the dark. Yeah, yeah. The last thing I want to talk to you about is your experience in the theater. Um, you mm-hmm. made your Broadway debut in the 2007 Roundabout Theater production Pygmalion and then mm-hmm. starred in the world premiere of Sarah Burgess's Dry Powder, helmed mm-hmm. by Hamilton director and very, very dear friend of the show of Design Matters, Tommy Kale which mm-hmm. I saw and was wonderful. Any future stage plans, assuming we can ever get back into the theater? Yeah, I don't 
No, I mean, sure. Uh, I'm not really like a stage bunny. No. <laughs> My husband, Hugh, is an amazing performer on stage. And, and he really came into being through the theater. And I love the theater as well. But I think I really fell in love with film and discovered myself as an actor in the world of film. That said, it is also true that my first professional experience was as a dancer at, at PS 122 when I yes. was six years old. Yes. Um, and then I did a, I did a solo dance piece with my bestie's mom, um, who is an amazing artist, uh, Tamara Rogoff. But yeah, so I did it. I did a solo with her again at PS 122, which was beautiful in my early twenties. And it just yeah, felt I believe very you won, full you won the PS 122 lifetime achievement award, right? I did. I, yes, I did. I did. That was very special. That was one of the most meaningful awards I'd, I've ever gotten. And so actually working in the public felt really familiar, um, in a way that working on Broadway didn't. Uh, again, I would love to do more of all of it because I love every version of this acting thing, um, in every context and every medium. I love, I'll read a book on tape. I'll read, you know, he and I are always wrestling for the books, reading to Cyrus and Rowan, you know, we're just, we're just like total hams, but yeah, I love, I, I love those intimate spaces. I do a lot of work with performance space and I can tell you without a doubt and without having to ask anybody else there, we'd love to have you back anytime. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I would, I, it was, it was really exciting to do a play that had never been done before, you know, and obviously it, Sarah's a legend. She's such a badass, but yeah, to, to get to make your mark and not have the shadow of previous iterations of it. Yeah. And Tommy's a, like a total dreamboat, oh, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. No, the whole thing, the whole thing was great. And, uh, and a, you know, seven minute walk from my house. I highly recommend that. My original last question for you was going to be, are you still afraid of the dark? But we've learned that you're not. And so we can um, forego that question. <laughs> but I still, I am still afraid of rats. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah. As, as, as am I. Claire, I just want to say thank you so much for bringing so much light in the world and making such beautiful characters, complex, really interesting characters come to life. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Oh, thank you. I, really, I love you and your show so much. I am I'm really, I'm like a diehard, avid fan. So this <laughs> was you. just like such a treat and an honor. So thank you for having me. For the time being, you can see Claire Danes on Showtime, in Homeland, and on HBO and Temple Grandin, and in the wonderful, uh, hopefully infinite reruns of My So-Called Life. Uh, this is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor and chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.